Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, we have Noel Lambert, who is from New Hampshire, has spent some time in Boston. We're going to get to talk about some of the Boston, the support that you've had from Boston sports teams, which near and dear to my heart as well. Uh, she is the 100 meter national champion, the women's national champion in, is it 60, uh, 40, 44 or 46, which? 63. 63, because they changed it. It used to be in the 40s and now it's in the 60s. I yeah. don't know why, but they did that just to give me a hard time, I think. Uh, but, and is also the founder of the Born to Run Foundation. She is sporting the sweatshirt right there. You can, you can just see the top of it. But the part that I think is so cool is that Noelle lost her leg above the knee in a moped accident. That's not the part I think is cool. The part I think is cool is that you came back and you played division one lacrosse after you lost your leg. I'm trying to wrap my mind around how that works. Like, how did that work? Did you, I mean, like, like, did you think it was possible? How, were you the one who was saying, I'm coming back, I'm going to do this, I'm missing a leg, but I'm gonna do it? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest things in the first stages of my recovery in the hospital was having the support system I did. Um, every single day I had tons of visitors, every single hour, so I never really had time to feel sorry for myself. And when I had my coach come in and talk to me saying that I was still going to be a part of the team in any way, in any shape or form, and that the university was going to be behind me 100%, I just kind of felt that I had a family and kind of a team to rely on. And so I knew that in the back of my head, I always knew right before I even got a walking prosthetic that I wanted to do it. Obviously, I didn't know how difficult it was going to be. I mean, I just remember always telling my mom, I'm going to do it. It's going to be, it's, it's going to be hard the first year, but then I'm going to breeze by and it's going to be fine. And then when I received my walking prosthetic, what was that? What was her response? What was your mother thinking? Like, we don't want to give her a hard time. Like, let's keep building her up. Or is she going, you're crazy, kid. You know, what's she thinking? Yeah. So my mom was always that type of person saying that I can do it. Uh, But I, so from the beginning, I always portrayed an image out that I really was okay with the accident, that I didn't want people feeling sorry for me. So I never showed anybody that I was upset about it. And she was kind of the only person that I did kind of, push all those feelings and emotions on and so she was always in my ear saying you're going to return you're going to be fine and so she was kind of helping me with that and then when I was talking to my prosthetist Jason Lala who's also an above knee amputee he was telling me Noelle like I'm that type of person that like you can do anything you put your mind to but just knowing the type of things that you have to do to return to the lacrosse field because his son played lacrosse and everything that you're going through right now I really don't think it's going to be possible just because you have to be able to cut back and forth you need to be able to cut and change direction and change your speed and I was just sitting there smiling I was like okay Jason whatever you say and um, when I received my walking prosthetic that's when everything kind of hit me because of how difficult that was to even walk. Um, And then I just, I kept having in the back of my head, my teammates were always so supportive saying, Noelle, you're going to return. I had an amazing coaching staff um, and I just the support system alone. I mean, even if I didn't believe I could, they, they believed that I could. So when I did receive my running blade, it was like, all eyes on just returning to the field any way, shape or form. Um, My assistant coach was actually an amazing 
part of that journey because she actually took the time with me every single day before and after practice working on footwork drills like that was the only thing we worked on and just kind of getting more comfortable with cutting back and forth and believe it or not I actually learned how to cut better off my prosthetic side than I did with my rear leg and it was just the amount of hard work and dedication uh, but there were days where I didn't want to be there I wanted to quit and it took a long time for me to realize that like I could actually do it. And I don't think I actually believed that I was gonna be able to until I was jogging on the field um, in that first game back. So it was something that I will never forget. Um, I mean, the video alone, when I go back and watch it, um, what makes me happy, I was able to score a goal my first game back, but what makes me happy is the reaction that I got from my teammates and coaches and how they embraced me because I mean, it really wouldn't have been possible without them. I'm a very stubborn person. And I mean, when I put my mind to something, I want to do it. But also I was that type of person that if I wanted to quit, like I just wanted you to leave me alone and no one allowed me to do that. So you were at, so is UMass Lowell, right? Yes, yes. So UMass Lowell and you, you led the team in scoring as a freshman, right? Yes, yes. Led the team in scoring and then you redshirted for a year. And I did. I took right? a redshirt year. Yeah, I took a redshirt year, but I never actually um, actually carried it through. I graduated on time with and then I was I was kind of ready to move on to something different. And that's when I track and field came into my into my life. But I did redshirt as a sophomore. I didn't play that entire season. I kind of just uh, created a different role for myself. And I was kind of like a student coach. Can you describe to people what your what your prosthetic is like, because you're an above the knee amputee and you're talking yes. about cutting and you're talking about having your sprinting leg because you had your sprinting blade effectively. Yeah. So, so how does, what does that look like? Can you describe how it looks? So, yeah, I mean, so it's one of those blades. So it's a big C and then my knee is probably about maybe two or three inches um, and it's mechanical. So knee. Yes, it's not it's not like a real knee at all. I mean, if I were to backpedal, I couldn't put my bring my prosthetic foot behind my real leg or the knee would give in and I would fall. So taking every single step was definitely uh, I needed to be very cautious. And that's what I needed to work on, because if I couldn't feel comfortable enough to run and catch a ball and cradle it down the field and I shouldn't have been playing. And so that's just the type of things that I needed to focus on. I needed to worry about only worrying about my top half of my body, not my bottom half. Um, but every single day of practice is a struggle. I can tell you that my first day of practice, I probably fell about 50 times. Um, and I mean, even returning again after my senior year, after I played again, I mean, it was like my accident never even happened, but every single day there would be something, some drill, where I would fall and I just kept getting up and I just kept saying to myself, everybody falls. So you just gotta, it's just about like getting up and not really having to worry about being down on yourself. And every time I did fall, I think every single one of my teammates would just laugh. So that's the kind of uh, support system I had. <laughs> but come on, get back up, let's go. That's yeah. funny, don't do that again. Uh, <laughs> and the funny thing is you mentioned Jason Lala, who's your prosthetist, who's somebody who knows, right? So I ski raced with Jason Lala. He was on this podcast, I don't know, two or three months ago, something like that. Yes. He is, yeah. he's one of the most phenomenal athletes that I know. I mean, he's just, you watch him ski and it's beautiful. It's the kind of thing that brings tears to your eyes, which he yes. said that you need to not snowboard and actually ski. So we'll work <laughs> on that later. But anyway, 
but uh, but it's but he's somebody who knows. And so when he's telling you, I don't think you can do it. He's somebody who's a problem solver and works with the prosthetic legs. But it sounded like your drills that you did with your assistant coach was like PT on steroids. Like, oh, absolutely. Has it changed? I mean, I imagine that it's it's changed the way that you walk. It's changed the way that you run. It's changed everything. Like you went through incremental little steps is what I'm imagining. Is that the way it worked? Yeah. I mean, actually, it's funny that you say that. When I was leaving my prosthetic appointment today, I had some new amputee come up to me and say, how, how do you walk so well? And I, I mean, a big thing is, is the, the physical therapy that I did off the bat. But now that I'm thinking about it, now that you said it, I mean, it is all the work that I did with the footwork drills and just kind of, I'm always like trying to be a perfectionist at how I walk and how I run. Like, I don't want it to look like I'm an amputee. I want it to look normal and fluent. And I would just say it was, it just, it takes so much time and so much effort. I mean, every amputee is different. Um, I mean, me and Jason were, were two very athletic people, but we both walk differently. And it's just like how in the early stages, how we both treated physical therapy and he will say the same thing. But yeah, when he was, when he was telling me that I didn't know him that well at the time, it was probably like my first or second appointment with him. Um, so like, I didn't really know his credentials. So if he told me that now, after four years of working with him, if I told him that I wanted to do something and he said, I didn't, he didn't think I could do it. I would actually not even try it at this point. I would say, yeah, you're right. Like everything you've gone through. Like, I knew he was a Paralympic skier, but I didn't know the type of athlete and the type of person he was at that point. So when he was kind of telling me that in my ear, I was like, all right, this is just somebody else telling me that I can't do this. And so it's funny that if he, if I wanted to do something right now, say if I want to try like mountain biking, I mean, he's been trying to get me to try that too. And that just scares the crap out of me. But, and if I went up to him and said that, and he said, no, I don't think you can do it. I wouldn't even try to attempt to even get on the bike. So hold on. <laughs> he told you that you couldn't play lacrosse. You went out and played lacrosse and what led the tied for the lead in, in scoring second in points and, and assists. Is that right? After no, I didn't. So I was never the type of player I was after my accident. Um, I got very solid minutes uh, my senior season, but I mean, I didn't start, I didn't start every single game and that, that wasn't what was important to me. What was important was just being back out there on the field. Um, but I contributed in other ways. I just found uh, different ways to be a part of the team and be fluent in the offense which was something that I needed. I needed to be taken down a notch. I needed to have this happen to me to kind of like slap it out of me saying, you're not the most, you're, you're not, stop acting like you're entitled to everything. Um, and I would definitely say that definitely helped me progress from lacrosse to track and field now. And it just makes me appreciate everything. Um, it just, it really taught me to be a better teammate. I, I would have to say that. So with the prosthesis, you you were lucky, right? Lucky one that you worked with Jason, but mm -hmm. getting a prosthetic, just even just a walking prosthetic, is 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 an expensive proposition. Exactly. Yes. And then getting a running prosthetic, because this is like you effectively have as many legs as other people have shoes. Really, is <laughs> kind of the direction it goes. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's crazy how expensive they are. So that's another funny story. I mean, when I went in to receive my walking prosthetic, I honestly pictured it as, okay, I'm getting my walking leg and they're also going to give me a running blade and I'll be able to return to practice that, that next week. And so that's when 
Jason and Matt and everybody at Next Step, they were like, well, um, specialized prosthetics can cost anywhere from ten dollars to $50,000. And insurance companies will not cover a specialized prosthetic. So you're basically on your own. But that's when I started learning about all these other foundations out there that help support amputees like myself. And that's when I learned about the Challenge Athletes Foundation. And so I just remember applying and they did get back to me, but they said that um, it was going to be about a six month period. And I wasn't going to receive it until um, that next April in 2017. So, I mean, it's, it's good. That I'm actually grateful for everything, how it happened, because I needed to focus on one thing at a time. If I got a running blade, when I got my walking prosthetic, I think that would have been a lot for me to handle because I mean, I really, the saying I really needed to learn to walk before I run, <laughs> before I ran. <laughs> yeah. So did they what did they use your story to I'm, I'm imagining that this is a super cool story for them like they they made an investment in you they got you a running leg which which is so funny because when i think of it i've seen it on the track right and yeah. when you're running on the track you are running in one direction granted there is a turn on the track but mm -hmm. but it's not the kind of turn that you're making when you're on the lacrosse field was anybody else doing that? And what did Challenge Athletes, I mean, Challenge Athletes must have loved this story that they gave you this prosthetic and you went out and played lacrosse. Yeah, I'm, I was the first above knee amputee to ever play collegiate lacrosse. I know that, but Challenge Athletes was amazing. I mean, they invited me to their gala, I believe that summer um, after the game and everything. And I just remember sitting there and they were kind of introducing all their new athletes that they had donated to or bringing everybody up on the stage. And they played this video um, of all their athletes doing different things. And they played the video of me scoring. I just, it, it, it kind of got to me. Like I started tearing up a little bit, but I mean, Challenge Athletes Foundation is something that's so amazing and everything that they do for, young amputees and just amputees who just want to be active and just live the life that they want. Um, that's honestly what inspired me to start my own nonprofit organization. Um, and so that getting to meet all the people that I have, I mean, that first gala is when I was kind of introduced to the Paralympic track and field world. And it's where I met Scout Bassett and Sarah Reineson. And so just getting to meet them, hear their stories, they were people that I did look up to and people that, I mean, hearing their stories, it just said, I, I just kind of spoke to me and said, everything that they've gone through and they've come out on top, I should be able to do the same. And that's now the message that I always want to portray out is that everything that I've gone through, I just want to show amputees around the world that as stubborn and lazy of a type of athlete and person I was before my accident, having this happen to me was something for the better. <laughs> it was something for the better and sports, I'm assuming, was really the thing that that kind of, I mean, it changed your life. You've always been an athlete, right? But mm -hmm. the importance of, of being able to be in sports after your accident seems like it was the thing that allowed you to be who you are, right? Yeah. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I'm. that's the first thing that jumped into my head when I realized that I was an amputee and that my leg was gone was sports. Um, just because growing up, that's kind of who I was. That was a big reason why I went to such a great college. And I mean, it's, it just, it, it spoke to me that having this happen to me and being able, I need, I needed to snap out of that type of person I was before I needed to 
I just needed something like this to happen to make me realize, okay, everything is happening to you right now. And it's because you did take it for granted. I did take everything that I had for granted. I mean, I would show up to practice my freshman year of college and I wouldn't give it my all. And I was always the type of in-game player. I hated doing any extra work. Like in the weight room, I would hide behind doors and I just was that lazy athlete. So having this kind of jump into my face really was for the better. <laughs> So you had to struggle. You had to put in all that much more effort. It, you you felt yeah. like you needed that as a person. How has that changed you? It has absolutely changed me. I mean, even returning to practice again after my accident, I mean, I was only going to practice once a day. And um, after about a couple of weeks of doing that, I started getting into the old habits of hiding in drills and kind of being self-conscious. And I really just wasn't performing at the best that I could have been. And that's kind of when my assistant coach realized that I was doing this and like stopped practice and started screaming at me in front of everybody saying, if you don't want to be here, quit. And so from that day on, I just, I realized, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, I shouldn't be doing twice as much work as everybody else because I have one less leg and everything that I am doing right now isn't good enough. Um, so getting that kind of beaten into me for the net for the next like four months um before I was able to return to play again it really did change the type of person I was and I did learn a lot about myself and I learned that I really did learn that playing sports isn't just the physical it's it's all about mental as well like you need to think about controlling things that you can only control and just really being a team player and so it really did kind of sit me down and realize these are, these are the things that you need to work on. And I mean, even transitioning over to track, I still use those lessons every single day. And it's crazy how much more mental running track is than lacrosse. But I mean, we can get into that in a little bit. It's just, it's a completely different sport, but all the lessons that I've learned from those sessions with my assistant coach, I still think to myself every day at practice. Are you somebody who needs the tough love? Do you continue to need it? Yes. Um, I would say not. Yes, a little bit, not as much as I did before. I needed someone in the beginning I, for two years. I needed someone screaming at me, telling me to do something or I wasn't going to do it. Um, I need it. And that's why I did hire a personal trainer when I was away from school on my summer breaks and winter breaks, just having someone there for me to tell me what to do because I was just so new to it and I needed to be encouraged and kind of motivated to do it. Um, but now I think that's why I think the pandemic did really help because it really did make me think, okay, I'm not just going to sit here and do nothing for four months. Like I need to get out and actually work out and do different and get creative with all my workouts. But I have definitely, yes, I'm definitely that person that needs to be screamed at. I'm not that type of person. If someone yells at me, I honestly take it as, okay, they're paying attention to me. So they want me to perform better. <laughs> Now, with sport being so important in your life, that's part of what you're sharing with the people with your foundation, right? How did, what's, what's the mission of your foundation? Yeah, so the kind of the mission is just um, helping amputees just live a fun and fulfilling life, whether it be sports, whether it be going to the beach, um, basically anything you can think of. I know the name, it's the Born to Run Foundation, but it's not just specific towards running blades. Um, I mean, funny story when we were kind of trying to figure out what to name it, my uncle was the one that mentioned the Born to Run Foundation and I liked it, but I mean, fun fact about me is I hated running 
before before track like I hated anything to do with running run tests like I just hated everything to do with it so I was like and eh, like why can't we just call it the Noel Lambert Foundation and he was like we're not going to call it that <laughs> just because you don't want to tie just because you don't want to tie your name into it like it's this is for the better so whatever my uncle said I said okay um but yeah it's the foundation just focuses on donating specialized prosthetics to just people who want to live a fun and active life and don't have to worry about paying for a costly prosthetic. Well, we've talked about it a little bit because you used a running blade when you played lacrosse. Yeah. But you're talking about somebody who wants to go to the beach. So is it a specifically different prosthetic that you wear going to the beach? Yeah, it's, it's completely different. Um, it it looks like a like an everyday walking leg. Um, I actually got mine donated from the Heather Abbott Foundation. She was one of the Boston Marathon survivors. And I mean, her foundation was another one that really inspired me to start my own. And so receiving that, but it's it's just like my running blade, whereas you need to be careful with everywhere you step because it's not a microprocessor knee. And so, I mean, I remember the first time I ever put it on, I was in Cancun with eight of my friends and I was falling all on the beach and all of my friends are just laughing at me. And like everyone, I mean, we were on a family resort and everyone was just terrified of all of us. Like, cause none of my friends were helping me. They were all just la like laughing and just kind of having that fun spirit. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a different leg. It's just, it's just meant for going in and out of the water. I mean, some people do use the knees for an everyday leg. Uh, it just, it depends on the type of person. But it's a waterproof leg, a waterproof prosthetic, right? So you can walk into the water and not have not ruin your leg effectively and not ruin the, the the joint and those kinds of things. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I go I go in pools with it, I go in the ocean, um, basically everything. I mean, Jason always tries to tell me the things that I shouldn't should and should not do with it, but I tend not to listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if you do or not. I mean, you didn't listen to him about the lacrosse, but you're saying you something now that you would listen to him. I'm not convinced. <laughs> he tells me to be careful. I will say that. He told me not to go parasailing. If I were to ever go parasailing, never to wear it. And I did wear it um, because, and if I were to go jet skiing, don't wear it because if it falls off, it will sink to the bottom of the ocean. It doesn't float. <laughs> so, but I've, I, I take very good care of my prosthetics. <laughs> What's your role with the foundation, with your foundation, with Born to Run Foundation? So I am the founder and the president. So, I mean, every applicant that comes through, uh, we have a, we have a board, we have a, a board member, we have board members. And so everyone kind of just agrees on it. Uh, I would say the most important person in the foundation is not myself. It's actually my mother. She does all the hardcore work. I mean, especially when I was in college and kind of juggling returning to play lacrosse and schoolwork. I mean, she was helping me out with all the legal things as, as well as my uncle and my aunt. Um, and then transitioning over to track. I mean, she just, she is a full-time job and I really don't understand how she does all of it because she has to deal with me on top of everything. Uh, so she is an amazing woman. Um, but yeah, so I just, I just kind of oversee everything. I, I would say my most important role is I pick all the cool gear <laughs> that uh, everybody wears. Um, but I mean, every time we make a donation, every time we make a give, I always want to be there in person and see it because I mean, I was that person receiving a, a specialized prosthetic that changed my life and allowed me to do the things that I never thought I'd be able to do again. So 
just getting to be a part of that and see their reactions, even their families' reactions. I mean, it it, it is an amazing thing that I'm I'm so grateful for. How do you guys how do you guys go about raising your money? Is it galas? Is it grants? How do you do it? So uh, we do golf tournaments. Uh, we've done um, 50-50s at the Bruins games. Um, we do different events in Boston, like Fenway Johnny's, like different restaurants and bars. Uh, we are getting to the point where we're, we're going to be able to host the gala um, very soon because I wanted to host a gala when we had a good amount of recipients and beneficiaries that we've donated to. So it's, it's mostly, it's all of our funds mostly come from um, either fundraising events and stuff like that. So every time we do a big fundraiser, that's where we always, always raise the money for our next uh, donation. But we come up with different ones all the time. Um, it's just, it's every time we have different ideas, we always, um, we're always a part of it. We do 5k walks. Um, yeah, I mean, we have I would say our biggest ones are our golf tournaments because I mean, even in September, this past September, we were able to have our first fundraising event since COVID. And I think we had like 40 something foursomes. So we, uh, we were sold out pretty, it was, it was pretty great to see all the support and everything come through, but we're always, we're always open to new ideas, new and fun ideas. And where are the people coming from? Like who, who comes to your fundraising events? Well, um, so my father uh, is, so my last name's Lambert and my father is, has nine brothers and sisters, or he's one of nine. Okay. And so I have, I think 26 first cousins. So that first fundraiser we ever had, it was all Lambert blood. And I mean, if, and that's kind of what honestly was an amazing thing because I didn't know my whole side of my dad's family until after my accident, we kind of had like a family reunion and I was able to meet everybody. And so it was crazy of how similar, like how I thought that I was the only lacrosse athlete in the family, but there were so many people, I was literally playing against Stonehill college and my cousin was a lacrosse coach and I had no idea. So it was just that's kind of what started it. Um, but I would just say just the lacrosse world in general has been amazing. And just the community in itself, the, the UMass Lowell, I mean, where I've, where I grew up in Londonderry, all my friends and family from there, um, it always is a community, but, uh, we always have people reaching out. I mean, every time we make a donation, we try to make, um, a big media event so we can get the word out. Uh, and that's when we get uh, people reaching out for donations and asking if there's anything that they can do for volunteer work. So we are really grateful for the community we've been able to build so far. When did this start? When did you start the idea of it? Cause I mean, you've done so much in a short period of time. I mean, your accident yes. was here. Give us a little bit of a timeline. So when yeah, so my accident happened in 2016, I think I started talking about it with my family that I, I wanted to start it and 2017 and we didn't make our first donation until December of 2018 and so for the past three years we've been actually able to donate 13 different prosthetics to 13 different people and so it's it's always it's always amazing and I mean we have a long list of people that are in line to get it so that's why we are super excited that New Hampshire and actually Massachusetts are now starting to open their doors and so we can able we're able to have more fundraising events where we can get we can get these prosthetics to these people because I know I was very I was a very impatient person and I wanted my leg yesterday so I want I want to get it out to them as soon as possible. <laughs> and, and you've had support from some of the sports teams as well. I mean, you, you Myra Craft, uh, 
community MVP. You were talking about the 50-50s with the Bruins who are playing right now. Yes. Uh, so sorry about that. Uh, but but <laughs> the, you've been working with the Celtics. And how did that all come about? How did they how did they find you? Was it was it something within the sports pages or yeah, so I mean, I think one of the big, the first big, like one of the, my biggest awards I received was the Heroes Among Us uh, from the Celtics. Um, and growing up, I was I, Celtics were my favorite team, so getting to experience that, and I think it was just kind of a mutual friend that nominated me, and that's when I won that. Uh, the Meyercraft, I was nominated by someone on our marketing team, who. Um, that was, that was because you were running lacrosse because you were playing lacrosse that that uh, so that here's the among us here's among us it was for my work with the foundation and playing lacrosse uh the Meyercraft was more specifically for the foundation because they donated ten thousand dollars um and then helped get that recognition out there the bruins uh we got that uh we got that gig from a family friend of mine he's just very well known and loves hockey and and knew um bob sweeney he i think he was a he, bruins player so he kind of had an in with that so that's that was actually that's actually one of our biggest fundraising events i mean cuz bruins 5050 raffles that can rack up to like $50,000 and so we get half of that and that's just always an amazing thing. Um, but I would definitely just say it's from, it's from the media and the marketing, it, basically what the marketing team has been able to do for the foundation, because every time all these amazing things come about, and I was able to throw out the first pitch uh, for the Heather Abbott Foundation uh, right after I played. It was like a week and a half after returning to play lacrosse again, and Heather reached out to me asking if I wanted to be a part of this. And it was actually a really special day because it was kind of, recognizing all the Boston Marathon survivors and they were all in the field so that I, I was like kind of representing all the good that has come out of that tragic day and so I mean it's amazing that I've been able to be a part of all these sporting events because um growing up I I love sports and actually a fun fact Tom Brady did sign my leg um about a year and a half ago and I was actually rocking his signature um for maybe a, for over a year <laughs> so it broke my heart when he left <laughs> well that's what i did you have to get rid of the leg when tom went to tampa bay or how did that work no i didn't get rid of it uh, i got i had to get rid of it because i was i was growing out of it i was my leg was shrinking too much um but i mean just getting to meet him and being a part of that i mean my eight so how that came about is my agency i work with they also represent a lot of the patriots players so i got invited to this fundraising event for James White and helping Boston Medical Center. And so I was I was there ready with my Sharpie, my silver Sharpie, just waiting for Tom to walk through the door. <laughs> and when you did the first pitch, I'm assuming you actually threw the first pitch as opposed to throwing it with your stick. Yeah, I threw it. I, did, I, I think I hit the ground right before. I'm not a great baseball player. I don't even, I honestly don't even remember. I don't, it was, I was so surreal to me. I was, just, I was, I was in awe. <laughs> okay. So we've got to get into running because yeah. you said your, your foundation is the born to run foundation. You are running now. You are preparing the trials are next month to go to Tokyo. But you said that you don't like, that you don't like to run or maybe I do now. I do now. You hated to run. <laughs> 
Yes, I do now. I would say I would have to say now I enjoy it. Uh, not long distance running though. I hate long distance running. Um, but kind of when I graduated, I really didn't want to hang up my athletic career just yet. Cause in my eyes, I just learned how to run. Um, and I was only running for about a year and a half. And that's when someone from the U S Paralympic track and field world kind of reached out to me asking if I've ever thought about pursuing the sport. And like I said, I was thinking to myself, I hate running, but this is such an amazing opportunity. Um, so I said, absolutely. I'll do whatever it takes. I signed myself up for the first track meet that kind of came into the picture. And that was, uh, Arizona, the desert challenge games. And so I had one month to train for it. So I just bought my, bought myself a pair of blocks, uh, bought myself some running spikes and I just starting blocks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which were ridiculously expensive. And I turns out the ones that I got are kind of a piece of crap. So I don't even imagine how much a good pair costs, (laughs) but I was honestly just going to the track every day, just kind of running, had no idea what I was doing, had no idea how to come out of the blocks. And I remember going to Arizona, not really realizing kind of how big it was. And I got there, realized the entire U.S. Paralympic national team was going to be competing there and that I was going to be competing against the reigning national champion in my classification group, Scout Bassett. Um, So I just wanted to quit and go home. I was I wanted to throw up. Uh, My mother was there. Jason was there. And I remember the night before. I don't think I've ever been that nervous in my entire life. It's crazy because I had always done um, team sports. I had never done an individual sport. And so I was just joking around with my mom. I was like, yeah, mom, like, could you imagine if like I actually beat her? And then this is like the time where my mom actually snapped it out of me. She's like, no, why you're not winning this race. Like scout has been doing this for eight years. She's very well known. She's a professional. She's a veteran. I was like, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, and then showing up the next day, I was I had no idea how to warm up like track athletes apparently warm up for what like 40 minutes like an hour before they compete I'm like sure I'm sitting on the bench 10 minutes before my race and I get up and just like do a few sprints and then I'm like okay I'm ready to go and I was known as a lacrosse athlete like all the coaches that were there they kind of knew who I was and just knew oh she's a lacrosse athlete and like you know how track athletes dress it's like they're basically wearing nothing I was wearing a baggy tank top and like shorts like I just looked like a lacrosse player and I just remember lining up on the blocks I mean scout was right next to me and she was so nice she could see how nervous I was she said don't worry you're gonna do great you're gonna do great girl and then so when the gun goes off I mean like halfway through the race I just I remember hearing this really annoying screeching sound and it was actually my mom because she was screaming at the top of her lungs because I, I was winning. And then I just remember crossing the finish line. And not only did I, in my first track meet ever, did I win, but I also hit the qualifying times to be on the national team. And I mean, that the only reason why I was at, that was even possible was because the two years prior, I was competing against people with two legs. And every single time we did a, a sprinting test, um, if I came in last, I would have to do like 10 burpees. And every time somebody else, and every time somebody else, I was beating somebody else, they would get screamed at because my assistant coach was awful and said, there's a girl with one like beating you right now. Maybe you should check yourself. So it was that tough love that just transferred over. Um, and so that's kind of when um, I kind of, my teammate, I mean, my teammate and kind of mentor now, Fumita Ayambeku came into the picture. She's a baloney amputee. She went to the 2016 Paralympics. Um, she's from the Boston area and she came up to me. She's like, no, I'll, 
you need to start training with me. I need to introduce you to our coach. And I remember going to practice that first day and doing one sprint. My coach was like, God, what is that? Like he literally just tore my, my running form to pieces. He was just like, you look awful. <laughs> and so it was that tough love that I needed. Um, but yeah, I mean, getting to practice alongside a Paralympian and someone like Femita has definitely helped me get to the point where I'm at today because I mean, she's a baloney amputee, but I always say if I had, if I had two legs, she could still kick my ass. Like no question about it. I mean, she just looks like a beast. <laughs> um, and then I was selected to compete at the world championships in Dubai in 2019. And that was kind of the first ever big stage of going in representing my country, like wearing the USA uniform. And I had no expectations. I mean, I just wanted to go there and run the best that I could. Um, and I ended up placing fourth in the world and I set a new year's record. So I think everything, everything is coming into place in, in the works for Tokyo. Um, I always say COVID and everything that happened, uh, it was kind of a blessing in disguise for me because I was so new to the sport. And so having this whole extra year to train and kind of get more comfortable at the things that I'm not comfortable at um, has definitely been something that I am grateful for. Where do you find yourself in this whole thing? Because you go to your first meet and, and you beat the best woman in the country, your first meet. So there's the tendency at that point to think, well, I'm pretty good at this. And then you go and you meet with the coach and the coach tells you you're absolutely awful. We've got to break <laughs> everything down and build you back up. And then you go to the world championships and you're fourth in the world championships. So where do you feel like you come down? Where, 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 what's your impression of where you are in your progression as an athlete? I mean, I think where I'm at now is somewhere that, I mean, I'm still, I can still, there are so many things that I can be better at. Um, and it, it, my, my coach literally says this every single day, like, oh, we're beating the lacrosse lead, the lacrosse athlete out of you every single day of practice. Uh, I would just say, when, when people used to say this to me, I never used to believe them, but every single day there is something that you can work on and get better at. Um, and I would never believe them when I was before my accident, I would just say, yeah, yeah, whatever you say. And, but there really is like so many different things and the part of like the whole mental aspect and just not thinking and just going out and running, that's something that I'm still learning. I just need to not think about anything and just go out there and perform because in my coach's eyes, he still thinks that I haven't completed a full, a full race yet. Um, I mean, even the world at the world championships, he said, um, he said, I came in the set. He said, I came out in the second heat when there was only like one final he, because I got out so late in the blocks and I was like the last person to get out in the block. So he's, he, I mean, it's, it's great that he has so much faith in me. Um, like, I mean, my biggest, like my biggest competition and like the biggest studs of my classification group, they're all from Italy. And so he always says, all right, we got to beat the Italians. We just got to show up. And like, every time I do something right, he's like, yeah, that's, that's what the Italians, that's what the Italians are waiting for. They're waiting for you to do this. So, I mean, just where I'm at right now, I'm just really excited because I know that there's so many things that still haven't come into place yet in a race. So when they finally do, I'm excited to see where I'll be at. Um, I swear to God, Jason wants to punch me in the face because I always come in. I'm like, yeah, I want to try this. I want to try this running blade. Like I want to try that one. And he's just like, all right, but like, are you actually timing yourself? And it's funny because my coach, if he times us, he won't tell us. 
I mean, he's been doing it recently because I'm working with a new blade, but before that, like if he timed us, he would just keep it in his head. And I mean, he would just say, I'll let you know, like what you need to work on and like what you need to worry about. So, I mean, I'm very excited for trials. I'm, I'm very excited to compete next weekend back at the uh, desert challenge games because I'm still just getting in the fit. Like I, I kid you not, I've, I haven't even ran. I think I've only been in a competition nine times. Like I haven't even hit that 10, 10th competition yet. So Double I still can, yeah, I still consider myself a rookie. Um, I think after Tokyo is when I'll be like, all right, now I can't use that excuse anymore. <laughs> and is it just a hundred meters that you're running? Are you running any other events? Yeah. So in my classification group for above knee, they only offer the hundred meter and, um, the long jump. So I don't do the long jump because I don't understand how people do it. I don't understand how people jump off their prosthetics and go so far. Um, so I'll leave that to the professionals. Uh, but I mean, I'm kind of grateful for it because my coach likes to torture me and makes me run two hundreds at practice and I hate them. So I just, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. And I'm content with just focusing on one, one competition and one race at, at a time. <laughs> one race at a time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And what do you run for a time right now? Oh, yeah. right now I'm in like the early 16s. I, to, to compete for a medal, I need to be in the 15. So I'm hoping that comes into play very soon. Um, but yeah, it's crazy because when I first started competing, I, I raced four times and I had the same exact time, like on the point decimal. And I was just getting so mad at myself. Like it was like 16.83 every, for every single race, I kid you not. And everyone was like, do you know how hard that is? And I was just like, if when I'm going to the world championships, I said to myself, if I run a 16.83, I'm quitting, I'm done. And I ran, it was, it was very weird, but I ran a 16 point three, eight or something. I like it, the numbers like alternated, <laughs> but, um, but I like, I just know that, I mean, you, I go and like watch this video. I'm like, yeah, I can do better at that. And just everything, once everything comes in together, I mean, my coach says I'm in the 15s right now, but I mean, it's a lot different running it in practice than it is running in an actual competition. <laughs> what do you need to do? What's the progression right now to get to Tokyo? Have you run the qualifying standard? So as of right now, I am the only above knee woman on the national team. So I'm in a very good spot, but I just need to run. I just need to keep running the way I'm running. Um, I need to, I think I need to run a little bit faster. Um, but I, they haven't picked the team yet, but I just, I need to keep doing what I'm doing and I should be fine. But I know that I can, I know that I should be running a lot faster than I am. And it's just the mental aspect of it and everything that comes into it. I'm worrying about 10 different things when I should be worrying about nothing. Um, but yeah, I just, I just, I need to show up at trials and just run the best I can. And I should but be fine. Do you need to win? Do you need to finish in the top three in order to qualify? How does it work? Yeah. So I honestly don't know because every, I hear different things from everybody. Um, what I hear is it's the percentage. And I mean, it, depend, it depends on how many athletes the U.S. are willing to take. Um, but I just I know I'm in a good spot because I'm, I'm right next to Scout. And I know I know Scout is Scout. I, I can't imagine the Paralympics without Scout Bassett. So I just know I need to if I win the race, I should be fine. <laughs> OK. Can you talk us through what your race entails? Like, how do you, 
how do you start? Because you're you're missing a leg. Mm -hmm. So so do you have your do you have your prosthetic leg back in the blocks? Do you have your prosthetic leg forward in the blocks? How does how does that work? And why do you why do you make those decisions? Um, so I have my prosthetic prosthetic leg back, and then I have my real leg forward because I don't have the muscle or the power to kind of explode off of my prosthetic foot if it was forward. Um, and it's it's crazy because so many people in my classification group and above knee amputees, they kind of start up. They don't even use blocks. Um, I'm pretty sure they're like me scout and only a couple other people we actually get down in the blocks and we explode out um so it's just because it's, it's almost crazy. like a jump really like the start yeah. is so, not really running get my leg, yeah yeah and yeah when people come out of the blocks they always tell you to keep stay very low for as long as possible but for me like i need to kind of stand up to kind of get my leg to bend and extend all the way through but so it's just about that power and that first step and not pushing back and just kind of exploding out. Um, it's, it's crazy because it's something that I'm finally kind of getting, getting it at this point. Like I understand what I need to do. I understand what it feels like. So I just need to do it in a race. I mean, it's crazy because it's crazy how difficult it is to go right when the gun goes off. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize this, but it's the most difficult thing I've ever done. And it's just like reaction time, but yeah, I mean, I just need to focus on just getting my first step very explosive and as much as possible. And yeah, and it's so different for every single person. Sorry. It's different for every single person. I mean, it, it honestly is whatever works for anybody, but my coach will, would never allow me to stand up at the blocks. He wants me to be in the blocks and I want to be in the blocks. I want to, I just want to, I want to do it the way that kind of everybody else is doing it. <laughs> that you're supposed to do it. So yeah. what so you have, so you have the start, what's the next phase of your hundred meters? What are the other phases? Can you talk it's, us through that? Yeah, it's kind of like my drive phase. So it's just kind of using all that power in that arms, like in the first, I would say like 20 meters. And then, and then it's all about maintaining it and just stretching out my stride and just keeping my running form. So I competed um, a few weeks ago in California and it was just my first competition since COVID. And so it was just, you could see that my start was really good. My dry phase was really good. But then once I, I got past and like I was hitting the last 40 meters, I was slowing down. And so that's because we really haven't been working on speed yet. I mean, my coach has this process and it's always trusting in the process. And so he wasn't worried about that. He just wanted me to get out in the blocks and just kind of focus on that but i mean me being me i always beat myself up on it but now at practice we're working on the last drive phase and like the last 40 meters and just maintaining that speed maintaining your form because when i get tired you can see it like my form goes to crap like my face goes in 20 different directions and that's something that i learned too apparently you need to have a relaxed face when you run and not look like you're getting hit by a bus <laughs> So it's just, it's just different. It's, I, I, there are so many things that I think about when I'm running at practice and it just pulls me in different directions. I'll be focusing on one thing and then I'll perfect that. And then I'll need to work on something else. And it's just every day, it's something different. Okay. Let's ask a little bit about this relaxed face thing. So, so <laughs> what is it? What is, why are you, why do you need to have a relaxed face? 
And (laughs) are you aware of it when you have it? Are you, do you feel it? Now I am. Now I can, now I understand it because um, when my face tenses up, that means my whole body's tensing up. So when my face is relaxed, everything else is relaxed. And that's kind of what I need to maintain. Um, And so, I mean, you'll literally hear my coach at practice. He calls me twinkles, like twinkle toes. And then he just says, twinkles, relax your face. Like right when I'm sprinting and then I'll just relax and then I'll I'll have great running form. (laughs) I don't know why he calls me twinkle toes, but. Probably because uh, when I first started running, he would kind of talk about my running form like I was galloping, like I'm not, I'm just like not looking smooth. Uh, So he started calling me twinkles and it just stuck. (laughs) That's going to be hysterical for anybody who's, who's kind of passing by your, your workout. I know. Yeah. It's, it's always funny. It's, it's always a good time. I mean, he's been getting very he's, he, he's a great guy, but when he gets serious, he gets serious and you don't want to mess with him. <laughs> well, Cause you're in the last little bit. We just passed a hundred days until the Paralympics. So yeah. it's a month until the trials. Yeah. And then, and, and you said that you raced in California and then yeah. you're going to race in Arizona, but this is, so Arizona will possibly, you're not sure, will get you to double digits as far as races are concerned. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you feel like you are? I mean, do, do you, you, you said that you're the one on the team, so you should make the team. Yeah. But do you have a sense of, of kind of where you are in terms of your progression and how you feel? I mean, I feel, yeah, I feel great. Um, I'm just that type of person that overthinks every single thing uh, and stresses out about things that I shouldn't be stressing out about, but I feel really good. The position that I'm in, um, I just know that there's room for improvement. And I, so I just, it's crazy because they don't give you, they don't give you anything. I mean, you get all the emails like, like you are going to Tokyo, but they don't choose the team until after, after trials. And so where I'm at right now is I'm honestly just, I'm using, I'm using, cause this is how they kind of said it. They said going into trials, there's like a discretionary line. So say if you didn't run the best time you did at trials, they can still bring you based on your recent performances. So I'm just using Arizona as my triad. I'm just, that's how I'm thinking of it. And if I run really great at Arizona, then I'll feel great. But I just, I, I just know that there's room for improvement. I just, I never want to jinx myself. I never want to say, I will, you, like, I will never say I'm going. I'm always saying, yeah, like trials are at this date and that's when I'll find out if I'm officially going. So just the point I'm at now, um, I'm just, I'm excited. I'm eager to finally get there because I mean, coronavirus pushing it and everything. I mean, it's crazy because I mean, this time last year I was, I was just finding out basically that it was being canceled. So, I mean, it was a lot uh, on the mental mind of kind of thinking, okay, well, I need to do this for another year. And then I need to cut. When I found out about coronavirus and everything, and when I found out that the trial, I mean, everything was being pushed a year, I was kind of freaking out a little bit because I was, everything that was happening at that moment, it was like a bar graph, like I was going up. And so after, after Dubai, after the world championships, I was feeling really great. I mean, I just placed fourth and I knew that there was still room for improvement. And then the coronavirus hit and then I didn't see my coach for like four months. So I was doing everything on my own. So it was very hard for me to kind of think to myself, 
to know where I'm at, to know where everybody else is at. I mean, social media is an awful thing because it just has me Googling all my competition and just figuring out where they're at and how they're running. So I just need to focus on one race at a time. And so I just have my eyes on Arizona and I'm going to use that as my tryout. <laughs> you bring the tough love to yourself or do you need somebody else to bring that tough love to? I bring the tough love to myself all the time. I mean, I just... I am always, I'm always critiquing myself. If there's video of me running, like I sometimes can't watch it because I know that there's, I, if, if, if it's an awful video of me running, I can't watch it because I'm just thinking to myself, there's room for improvement. Um, but I mean, my coach isn't, he gives me tough love, but he also gives me the support that I need. He gets me to re he's the type of person that will get me to really to relax. And so will my teammate Famita. I mean, me and Famita are kind of similar in that aspect. If we run a bad race, we're pissed and like, we, we want to run that, like, we want to run it again that very second. I mean, me personally, I kid you not, like I, I had a real, like I raced in California and we were supposed to have an off day the next day. And I asked my coach, I was like, can I practice? And he said, absolutely not. You're taking the day off. Just clear your mind and stop worrying about track. I like our, our training schedule. If we have a competition the day before, he won't let us go to the track and practice. He says it's, we need to take the day before. Don't even think about, um, I was going to say lacrosse. Don't even think about track and kind of get your mind right. But I always still sometimes just go to the track and just like kind of shake out and just do something active because if I don't do something active, then I'm just going to be on my butt, <laughs> but it's just, it's all different things. It, it, it is me bringing the tough love. Um, I don't really talk to, uh, talk about sport, like track and field with my mom, because I mean, she just, uh, like, she understands the sport, but she just doesn't understand like everything that's going into it, which is, which is understandable. Cause I didn't understand what track and field was until that. So she'll always be like, you're fine. Like you're going to run really well. And then I'm like, mm, we'll see. <laughs> You have an interesting relationship with your slightly adversarial sometimes with your coach, it sounds like. Yes. But you're also in the position with your foundation of being a mentor. Mm -hmm. How does that, does that change your relationship with your coach? Does that change, you know, just what you might say to some kid who's coming up? Does that change the self-talk that you have for, for you? Yeah, well, um, I actually still coach lacrosse. So everything that I've learned from my coach, I actually transitioned it over into lacrosse. Um, I, I use all the lessons that he gives me. Um, I mean, it's, it's just, it's a crazy thing because you just, you don't ever see yourself as a mentor. Like you never, I, I, if I'm looking at myself, I'm like, I don't, I wouldn't call myself. I want to be a mentor. Like I want to be that inspiration for somebody else. That's just always something that I've always wanted to do. Um, and so, I mean, having a teammate like Famita, her being a mentor, I mean, she does, she never realized everything that she's done for me. I mean, now she does because the amount of times I've said it, but I mean, in the early stages, she just kind of taught me and made me realize like, this is what you're going into. This is how, this is how it's going to be. And so me being a coach and kind of transitioning that over, I mean, I will never, um, I will never act like that towards my coach. I'm very quiet. I'm very quiet in front of him. I'm very loud person in front of everybody else. But when it comes to him, I'll joke around and stuff. But when it comes to like actually performing, he'll just tell me one thing. I'll say, okay, got it. And I will never question it. I will never, I will never say, shouldn't I be doing this? I just say, okay, got it coach. And that's it. And so it just kind of teaches me how to 
react with everybody else and every other athlete that I now coach um, because I coach a lot of high school athletes and I coach and they're at that age where they're just kind of coming out of their shell or they think that they're the best player in the universe. So it's just kind of, it's funny and it's, it's really, it's a cool process of like how to deal with that um, and stuff like that. But I'm also that type of coach that will, I'm very, I'm very laid back. Uh, I wish that I could be very tough. Like I, I'll start yelling at the team if they're actually like making me angry, but I'm, I'm that type of person that will be friends with you. That'll joke around with you and stuff like that, because I want them to be comfortable with me. I mean, they see a girl with one leg trying to teach them how to play lacrosse. I mean, it's, they know who I am because of the lacrosse world and everything, but it's just, I always, I give them the respect that, that they should be giving me. <laughs> Fair enough. This has all happened for you in a short period of time. I mean, losing your leg, playing lacrosse, approaching Tokyo. What does Tokyo mean to you? What is what is competing in the Paralympics? Do you have dreams? Do you have expectations? Do you have things that you need to do in order to feel whole and complete? <laughs> How are you viewing Tokyo? I mean, I always say this, uh, just going there and getting to compete alongside the best in the world and representing my country. I always say that that's a gold medal in itself. Um, I give every single one of my uh, competitors the respect that they are just there. I, I always show up with no expectations. I would love to come home with the gold, but I also need to be realistic and I need to realize that it's my first Paralympics. And so the nerves could be a good thing or they could be a bad thing. So I'm just going to go out there and I'm just going to treat it as when I went to the world championships and I'm going to run the best that I can and just always and only focus on the things that I can only focus on and I can only control. I mean, getting to stand there alongside the best in the world, that's just, that's such an amazing thing. And I mean, something that I am truly grateful for. But it's always it's always an amazing thing just getting to put on that uniform and just realizing that this is the same uniform that Olympians wear. So it is just my biggest goal is just to help grow the Paralympics um, to the point where the Olympics are. And I mean, I we are taking strides to that. I mean, this year, I believe, is the first Paralympics that it's going to be broadcasted on national television and Toyota just came out saying they're partnering with the Paralympics and giving sponsorship opportunities for every Paralympic athlete that makes it to Tokyo so the support system that we're getting is truly amazing to just realize that we're having the support system that's behind us and they're trying to make our dreams and our goals come true because we're not just competing we're not just the best of the best for disabled people more than there are so many of my teammates that I kid you not that could go to a real track meet and could beat able body athletes. And it's, it's such an amazing thing to be a part of. And it really is bigger than myself than my teammates. It's just kind of creating um, a movement where it's kind of normalizing Paralympic athletes and not having people view us as someone who's broken or someone who's disabled and viewing us as someone who has taken tragedy or taken loss and turned it into something that's amazing. Does that extend to your everyday life? Cause you're talking specifically about, about sports as well, right? So it's these athletes that you compete with could conceivably beat able-bodied athletes, but does it extend to your, to your everyday life? And, and what's the statement that you're making? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always say the things that I do, um, 
for myself, for everything else. I mean, I'm doing it for the person that believes that they can't with, even with, if it's just going out with my friends and just living a normal life and not treating myself like I am an amputee. And I just want to show the people out there who are going through difficult moments and going through difficult times that if I can get through something like this, that's so can they. And I mean, that's something that has grown. I have grown into, um, I kind of never realized that like I was creating this image, creating this life for myself until probably after I graduated, because I had a bunch of my teammates coming up to me at graduation saying, well, there are so many days where I just showed up at practice after class and I just didn't want to be there. I want, I, I just wanted to go home and go to bed. And then I would look over and see you smiling. And so that just made me snap out of it. And so hearing that, that was like one of the, like the main things. So what I am getting into now is I am becoming a public speaker and a motivational speaker. And so I just want to kind of just keep portraying that image out there and creating awareness to some of the things that amputees go through. We don't just go through the tragedy of not having a leg. I mean, we go through um, financial issues with dealing with different prosthetics and paying for it and just different things like that. And people thinking that you can't just because you have a metal leg or you're in a wheelchair. It's just, it's that is actually getting better with the time that is going on. But um, yeah, I, I would say I do portray that out in my life every single day. And that's why the foundation is what it is because I just always, that's how I kind of portray all my messages. Does that force you to live to a higher standard where you said that, that before you were, you were the lazy, the lazy athlete at practice. And a curse because now I can't go a day. Well, like my weekends are always my day off. I never do anything active, but during the week, I can never go a day without doing something active. And so I'm actually grateful for that. But even, even like just going and living the life and going out with my friends and just enjoying it and going on vacations and stuff like that. I mean, it's just, it's something that is, has changed me for the better. And it just has I'm just always looking forward. I mean, I've always been like this. I'm always looking forward to the next thing. I'm always thinking, okay, like, what am I going to do after this, after that? And so it's just always about like, what's next for me and always about just like, well, what can I do to better my life? And just like the type of person I am. You said that Tokyo is your, your first Paralympics. Yes. Does that mean that you're planning on a second Paralympics? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm, Definitely going to try to do Paris 2024. Um, you did mention snowboarding in the beginning of this interview. I did grow fond to snowboarding this past winter, which probably wasn't the smartest thing to do training right before the winter before the Paralympics is starting up a completely different sport. Um, but I, I mean, my boyfriend is a, he's an amazing snowboarder and he just, he got me into it. So I just, I grew very much in love with it um and kind of Jason yeah Jason's a skier he always wanted me to ski and I was like yeah I'm not doing that I want to do snowboarding so that kind of punched him in the gut a little bit but I mean I would love to do I would love to do snowboarding in the Paralympics I think that would be an amazing goal but I need to I need to focus on one thing at a time or my head's gonna explode uh but I tend to I tend to always do this to myself I always create goals and I'm always looking forward to what's next before the things actually happen. Um, but I mean, I, I, I can't lie to you if I say I haven't reached out to the snowboarding head coaches at the Paralympics and stuff like that, trying to get involved any way I can. 
um, like after Tokyo, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to roll with it. I mean, I think it would be amazing to be a dual athlete um, and just to do, to do whatever I can and just keep living the life that I want to live. Well, I think that's an awesome place to stop. So I look forward to seeing <laughs> you next month in Minneapolis, because I will be doing some of the color analysis for, awesome. for NBC. So that'll be yes. fun. So I'll get a chance to talk about you and yes, hopefully congratulations nice about me. <laughs> say good things about you. It won't be hard for me to say good things about you. <laughs> but I hope that you run fast and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being a part of the name tags, uh, name tags chat podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was, this was an amazing time and thing. And it was so nice to actually get to meet you in person because Jason likes to talk about you and say different things. So it's nice to meet you in person and kind of prove him wrong. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. I'll have to figure out, I'll have to ask you what he actually says about me. We'll see. No, all good things. <laughs> I'm, sure. I'm sure he's great. So anyway, thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the whole thing, it will be archived on the One Revolution page on Facebook. We also will edit this and, and slightly edit it. And it will be on YouTube, it will be on Spotify, on Apple, on all of the other places where you find podcasts. So if you want to listen to Noel again, please tune in, please follow us. You can either go to the website or, or you can go to the or you can go to the page. Uh, but also the greatest gift that you can give us is if you like what we're doing, please tell your friends, please share out there, please follow us, please like us. And we'll continue to bring you great guests like Noel. So, Noel, thank you. Have a great day or a great night and train hard. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Take care. Thanks.